Now we turn to the word of God, and which is going to be read to us by Mike Judge. If you have a Bible with you, please do open it at uh, the book of Hebrews. It's a letter to the Hebrews. We'll read together from the first chapter. We'll read the whole of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through to 14. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's an enormous privilege for, for us to have tonight the Reverend Morris Roberts. Mr. Roberts is Minister of the Free Church of Scotland Continuing and has served in ministries in Eyre and in Inverness and is now retired from Inverness but remains a, a respected and well-received speaker and preacher throughout the land. He's got a wonderful subject tonight, I think, which we're looking forward to listen to and to learn from. So I'm going to hand over to Mr. Roberts now to talk to us about Christ, the final revelation of God. As you have heard, the subject is Christ, the final revelation of God. Now, what does this description mean? It means that the Bible is a record 
of God's gracious dealings throughout history, from the days of the fall of Adam and Eve right up to the end of time. And this revelation of the purpose of God is progressive. God, of course, in his own mind, knew everything that was to happen. In his books, all was written down, and he knew it all. But he did not disclose or reveal his thoughts all at once. So we speak about the Bible as being a progressive revelation. And the Old Testament grew steadily from the days of Moses, that's 1500 BC. Little by little, in the Old Testament until Christ, and then with Christ, we were given a deposit of truth which was final, conclusive, and perfect to the end of time, to which no church may add a syllable because it is complete. Now, if you want an illustration for what I have just said about the progressive nature of the Bible and of Revelation, I would use this illustration that the way in which God has progressed his disclosure of his purposes throughout history in the Bible is similar to a winter's day. At, let us say, seven o'clock in the morning, it's still very dark. But by 10 o'clock, it's a little bit lighter. And when we come to 12 o'clock, it is bright. Now, that is how the Bible is. God did not give everything at first. Little by little, he opened up the revelation of his truth so that those succeeding generations would progressively understand what his purpose of grace was to be. Now, that calls into question, what do we mean by a revelation? Because the title which has been so graciously given to me is, as you heard, Christ the final revelation of God. What then is meant by the word revelation in this context? The answer is, it means, the way in which God has been opening up the covenant of grace. Now, I do make a strong point here. In the course of history, you will know that there have been two covenants. There was the covenant of works, which God made with Adam and Eve in the beginning of history. And their standing before God depended entirely on their own perfect personal obedience to the will of God. But now once they broke the covenant of works, it became worthless as a means of mankind's pursuing the search of fellowship with God. So as soon as Adam and Eve sinned against God and broke the covenant of works, God immediately made a second covenant with mankind, which we refer to as the covenant of grace. In other words, what Adam did when he stretched out his hand to take the fruit from the tree is he, he put out the light. You know what you do when you're in bed at night? You read a chapter of the Bible, let us say, or of some devotional book, Samuel Rutherford or some other, and when you finish the reading, you stretch out your hand and you press out the button and out goes the light. Well, that's exactly what Adam did. Not Eve. 
her sin simply affected herself. But Adam's first sin was a sin of a public man. And because he was the head of the covenant of works, it means, as you will know, that that first sin of the first man is imputed to every child born from the moment of its conception in the mother's womb. So we are sinners through and through before we're born. So there's no way that we could be saved by our own good works. And in the light of that, therefore, God in his grace, immediately, as soon as he called Adam and Eve to judgment, he revealed to them in Genesis 3 a new covenant in which he makes reference to the coming of a redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in general terms, the covenant of grace was purposed by God in two stages. The Old Testament was an administration of the covenant of grace. And then the New Testament, since Pentecost, is also a further administration of the covenant of grace. What we must never fall into the temptation of saying, and which all too many have said, what we must never say is that the Old Testament was an administration of the covenant of works. It was not. For this obvious reason, that if it were a covenant of works that God made with the forefathers in the Old Testament, then they could not possibly have been saved. So the Old Testament covenant was a covenant of grace, both before Christ and since Christ has come. Now, what, what is a covenant? That's a crucial question. Christ is the final revelation of God, and it demands, therefore, that we should ask, what do we mean by a covenant? And I give you this brief definition. A covenant is the God-given terms by which we may be pardoned, justified, and glorified. Could I repeat it? A covenant means the God-given terms by which we may be pardoned, justified, and glorified. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's Father revelation, came to bring that to its fruition. Now, we all know that there were stages in the Old Testament revelation of this covenant. I mentioned them before. First, God revealed the covenant to Adam and Eve. And it looks as though Eve was under the impression that the son born to her, Cain, was the promised Messiah. I have gotten a man from the Lord, she said. And it may well be she thought this was it. But if she did, of course, she was very far from the truth. She had to wait, and we had to wait thousands of years till our Lord Jesus Christ came. By the time of Abraham, that's 2000 BC, God threw light on the line of the family which was to give birth to the son. It was Abraham's family, his line. By the time of Moses, God now gives a form of worship. Now we have to be very careful what we understand in the days of Moses to have happened. God gave the moral law as a rule of life. But we must never imagine that the Israelites were saved by keeping the moral law. 
Israelites in the Old Testament were divisible into two. They were the saved and the unsaved, as there are today in churches and nations throughout the world. Those who were saved in Israel of old were saved by faith alone in the coming Savior. He had not yet come, but the promise was that he would come. Now the moral law therefore was given in order to excite within their consciences the realization of their sinnership and to stir them up to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ who was the promised Messiah. In addition to the moral law, God gave two other forms of law and these are known as the ceremonial law and the judicial law. Now the ceremonial law was specifically organized and decreed by God to lay emphasis on two things. First, upon the need of cleansing, hence there's a lot of references to cleansing and washing and purifying in the ceremonial law. And the other great emphasis was upon the need of the shedding of blood. And both of these provisions of the ceremonial law uh, must be understood now as pointing the minds and the consciences and the thoughts of Israel forward to the days when the Messiah would come and he would accomplish by his life and death what all the sprinkling and the shedding of blood could not of itself do in Old Testament times. Now I must emphasize before I go on that this ceremonial law is 100% totally abolished. We must never bring anything of the ceremonial law into public worship today. It has been entirely abrogated. The other form of law I mention is that of the judicial law. Now the judicial law involved the special arrangements that God made with the nation of Israel whilst it was God's Old Testament special nation. Such things, for instance, as this, to take an example, that if a woman was married to a man and the man died, that the man's brother must take the woman and raise up seed or children by her. Now, I must say to you, all the provisions of the ceremonial law are gone and all the provisions of the judicial law are equally gone and must not be applied in the modern world except insofar as there are certain principles of equity. If you want an example of that, it is the fact that we must not marry within certain degrees of consanguinity. We can't marry a sister, we can't marry uh, beyond a certain degree, within the degrees. So that derives from the judicial law. Now, the climax of all this progressive preparatory revelation of the Old Testament was, of course, for the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. It was absolutely necessary for Christ to come because he is the one who accomplished absolutely everything necessary for the redemption of the world. So we call him God's final revelation justifiably because Christ does everything necessary to make the covenant of grace valid for all believers, both of the Old Testament and of the New it's an interesting thought that in the Old Testament, the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on, in the Old Testament, the sins of these Old Testament saints were, strictly speaking, not forgiven. And the Greek word in Romans 3 is that their sins were passed over. 
So in the Old Testament, it wasn't possible in a strict legal forensic sense for God to forgive the sins of his people. What he did was he passed them over. The effect of that was, of course, that when they died, they went to glory on the basis of what Christ would one day do in the future when he came. On the other hand, when people today believe in Christ, they are truly forgiven in a judicial and legal sense in that God now has a basis in law whereby he can be just and also the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So the effect of the coming of Christ is this, that he has accomplished by life and by death what no one else could do and therefore he has brought to an absolute conclusion the revelatory process which God instituted at the beginning to Adam and Eve and he has told us now, not only in the Old Testament but much more in the New, all he intends to tell us about Christ and salvation and the glory to come and we shall not have another syllable from God added to what he has given us in the New Testament until the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised when we see him not by faith, but face to face. Now, as God's final revelation, let me come to this question, what was it that Jesus had to do? What did Jesus do as God's final revelation? And the answer is everything necessary to solve mankind's supreme and absolutely most necessary problem. What is man's greatest problem? Not war, not crime, not the Eurozone, not the Arab Spring, and not what bankers have been doing in the last number of years with their money. No, no. The greatest problem of mankind is sin. It always has been since Adam disobeyed God. So what Christ came to do was to deal with mankind's supremely serious sin. I mentioned a moment ago what it is that constitutes us sinners. You and I are not sinners because we sin. That's a mistaken conception. We sin because we are sinners. Let me say it again, forgive me if I'm repeating, but the first sin of the first man is imputed to us all because we're all in the covenant of works by nature until we're converted. And so a child in the womb, or even the beginning of a child in the womb, as soon as it begins to exist in the mother's womb, it has a soul given to it. You say, how do I prove that? Well, Psalm 51. In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, there's no such thing as sin in a piece of human matter in the womb that doesn't have a soul. Sin is something which is the responsibility of a soul. The body doesn't have sin. It's the soul that has the sin. So as soon as David was conceived in the womb, Psalm 51, he was reckoned by God to be a sinner. Not because he had done any sin of his own, of course, but because the first sin of the first man, the guilt of that was imputed to him, as to you, as to me, as to all mankind. So what Jesus Christ had to do was he had to deal with this problem of imputation of sin and of guilt. Now, it's because he is God's final revelation that 
he came to deal with this with extraordinary, wonderful qualifications. What are these? Well, first of all, he was a person of the Godhead, one of the three persons of the Godhead. There is one essence of God, and this one essence of God is shared equally between three holy persons, each equal in power and glory. My friends, Almighty God has taken our nature into union with himself, not just for 33 years, but forever. Why does he need to keep the human nature? Why did he not discard it as soon as he'd finished dying for us on the cross? And Rutherford gave us a beautiful answer, because in the end of history, we shall be his bride. He will marry us to himself with infinite, inconceivable love and delight, because the Father has given us to him as his church. Now, because he is God, he could not die for us, because there are three things God cannot do. People say God can do anything. Yes, but with qualification. There are three things God cannot do. He cannot, he cannot lie, he cannot die, and he cannot deny himself. Those three things. So because Christ as God could not die, he must needs take a human nature into union with himself, which he did. So he now is in a position to die in the human nature. But... <coughs> Wait a minute, if he is born as we are born, the sin of Adam will be imputed to him also as it was to us. So, wonder of wonders, this final revelation of the purpose of God called Jesus Christ, he had to have an absolutely unique birth. And that birth had to be that there was no male contribution to the conception in the womb. It was a work of God's Holy Spirit so that the child in the womb of the Virgin Mary did not have the sin of Adam imputed uniquely. No other child ever born into the world was in that position, nor ever will be. But he had to have a virgin birth. And those unfortunate liberal theologians who deny the virgin birth as nonsense immediately take away the gospel. If he did not have a virgin birth, there is no saviour because the sin of Adam is imputed to him. And if it's imputed to him, he cannot be our saviour. He has to be therefore sinless in his human nature. And this was the wisdom of God, to give to Christ a human nature which had no sin. So he had to have a virgin birth. And we see therefore that when our Lord came into his ministerial position as a preacher at the age of 30 and a miracle worker, he was given... At his um, baptism, a degree of unction of the Holy Spirit, which he didn't have in his earlier days, the first 30 years of his life. We say that Christ had three degrees of unction of the Holy Spirit upon him. The first degree was at his birth. The second degree was at his baptism, which gave him the power to do these miracles, which he did. I might mention them later a little but the third degree of his unction was when he died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God. Forty days later, on the day of Pentecost, he poured out the Spirit, and that unction is called the third degree of Christ's unction, which has given the apostles the power to go through nations and kingdoms and do the wonderful things in preaching, which are recorded here in the Acts of the Apostles. 
So, Christ is a God-man. He has two minds and two wills, because he has a divine mind and a human mind, a divine will and a human will. We must look at it like that. These two natures were resident in one person. Now, we must be careful how we define Christ at this point. We say that Christ, insofar as he is the Son of God, is of the Father. But insofar as he is himself God, he is of himself. The Greek term is autotheos, of himself. That's John Calvin. What a wonderful contribution it is. So we must never subordinate Christ to the Father as though Christ derived his very essence from the Father. No, no. His essence was derived from himself. Now, salvation and forgiveness come to us on the basis of God's justice being perfectly satisfied. Jesus needed a human nature in which to die for us. But if he had nothing more than a human nature, he would not be of sufficient value to satisfy the demands of God's justice insofar as he would simply be able to die for himself alone. Therefore, if Christ was to die for the world's sin, or for the church's sin, which is more strictly the right view we should have, it's a limited atonement, is there? Yes, they're not. He died, strictly speaking, only for the church's sin, the believer's sin throughout the world. If, his, if Christ was going to do that, which he did, of course, he must die in the human nature, but because the human nature was united to a divine nature, the value of that death becomes infinitely great in the sight of God. Now, at this point, we must introduce an important word. It's the word propitiation. Now, this is a word that liberals do not like. And C.H. Dodd, who uh, was one of the um, translators of one of these versions, whether the, was it the New English Bible version, I think, of the New Testament, uh, one of the experts from Cambridge, I think, if you remember, C.H. Dodd did not like this word propitiation. Christ, as a final revelation, he said, did not give to God a propitiation. It was not a propitiation. Now, let us explain why he didn't like that. It is because, as a liberal, he looked upon God as love, love, and nothing but love. And therefore, there was no such thing as anger in God against the sin of man. But you and I know from reading the Bible that God is not only infinitely loving, but also infinitely just. <coughs> infinite in kindness, but also infinite in justice. And... Um, there's plenty of evidence for that. Look at Exodus, where God says in chapter 20 of himself, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. And nobody more emphasizes hell than Christ, where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched, is what Christ says again and again and again and again. How can you escape the damnation of hell, he says, to certain people who are very religious but not converted. So this word propitiation needs a word of explanation. What does it mean? Christ on the cross was made a propitiation. That's the word in Romans 3 and in 1 John 4. What it means is this, that 
the wrath of God, like a stream of fire, will come down upon the head of every sinner, sooner or later, either in this world or that to come. So it's like a man standing under a waterfall. The water's about to come down on his head. But then by some wonderful device, something interposes and moves the water to one side so that it does not fall upon the poor victim at the bottom of the waterfall. Now that is what Jesus Christ did by his death. He stood in the place of damnation and he himself drank the cup of our damnation and in so doing, he offered to God's justice complete satisfaction. He was damned himself that you and I should not be damned. And he did that in order to satisfy the just and righteous demands of God's holy nature. Now I'm putting it to you again. God cannot deny himself, which means he will not forgive anyone except on such terms and conditions as that his own justice as God is fully satisfied. And that means, in practice, that the only way we can satisfy the justice of God is by believing in Christ who has taken our judgment and stood in the place of condemnation and himself has swallowed up the wrath of God in his own person. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now there's a phrase in the Apostles' Creed which is often misunderstood. And I happened to be in a conference a few years ago with William MacLeod, whom some of you know, and we were arguing with beloved friends of the Church of England down there, evangelicals in Oxford, and I'm afraid I couldn't agree with them. Uh, the view of uh, the Apostles' Creed statement, he descended, Christ descended into hell, is this, I believe that he descended into hell whilst still on the cross, not after he died. You see, there is a view in, in, in some Anglican thinking, especially Roman Catholic thinking, that when Jesus died, his soul went down to this place called Hades, and he did a number of things there, all sorts of ideas, what he did. That, I believe, is absolute and total nonsense. And I'll tell you why. It's that when Jesus had finished dying on the cross for us, he said... Tetelestai, it is finished. So he had nothing more to do. There was no reason for him to go down to hell. And you know very well what he said to the thief on the cross who repented. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise or heaven. So there's no time or opportunity for our Lord to go down anywhere. No, no, when he descended into hell, according to the Apostles' Creed, it means before he died, not after he died. On the cross, our Lord went through the wrath and the curse of God Almighty for my sins. And in so suffering, he became a propitiation for the sins of his people. Not only that, but Christ both lived for us and died for us. It's not always appreciated that the righteousness which believers receive when they believe in Christ is a twofold righteousness according to the way in which we look at the life and death of Christ. Christ perfectly, completely, and totally kept the Ten Commandments. Not for himself, because he didn't need to keep them for himself. He kept them for us. So that, in so doing, he would achieve what we call an act of obedience. 
Now that is part of the righteousness which is imputed to believers when they come to faith in Christ. The other aspect of Christ's work was he suffered the punishment due to our sins and in that way he has what we call a passive obedience. So there's an active obedience in his keeping the moral law on our behalf and the passive obedience in which he suffers the consequences of the broken law which we have broken and he has not broken. And these two constitute a whole, total and complete obedience and a total righteousness. And that righteousness is what is imputed to believers the moment they believe. So two things happen as soon as a person believes in Christ. One, all their sins are blotted out. Two, they are credited with the obedience of Jesus Christ, which he fulfilled by keeping the moral law in the 33 years of his life. So we have this twofold privilege. The righteousness which God gives us is the righteousness which his righteousness required him to require of Christ. And therefore, God's justice is perfectly satisfied. And when he sees a believer, he does not see him in himself. He sees him as clothed with the garment of redemption and salvation, which Christ has achieved by his act of obedience and his passive obedience. We have two neat phrases which I give you, which help us to remember the phrase. The first one is, when Christ uh, died for us, he wiped away our sins and he gives us a clean slate. The blackboard is clean. All my sins are rubbed out from God's book. But not only did we get a clean slate, we get a full slate. We are credited with Christ's obedience. So we have those two aspects to the righteousness which believers receive when they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this connection, I would say that the Epistles of the Hebrews is of a special relevance to the subject in hand. As you know very well, the subject is Christ, the final revelation of God. And the Epistle to the Hebrews is emphatically the place where this emphasis is to be found. Let me say why. Now, the term Hebrews simply means Jews, Jewish people. Why should they specially require to have a letter addressed to them? Now, the answer is very simple. It's because we all get used to our forms of worship and of religion, whether we're Methodists or Baptists or Church of England or Presbyterians, we all get used to a certain form of worship. We do things in a certain way. From childhood, we get used to it and we get used to it, we get familiar with it, we get to like it. Now, that's all very well. But in the case of the Jews who lived when Christ was alive in this world, they were so fond of their forms of worship that they didn't realize that God had only given them these forms of worship until Christ should die. As soon as Christ died on the cross, these forms of worship became out of date. But the Jews didn't recognize this. They were so much in love with the forms that they made the mistake of keeping the form when it was out of date. Do you remember the illustration that Jesus uses to correct them? He says, old wine and new wine. He said, when a person's used to the old wine, 
they don't take kindly to the new wine. Now that was a reference to the Jews. The Jews are so fond of their temple worship and their sacrifices and all that goes with it that they didn't realize that when Jesus the Messiah came in the fullness of his relevance as the, the revelation of God, as soon as Jesus died, all the Old Testament worship was immediately out of date. And they should immediately have dropped it and turned to Christian worship. But they didn't all do that. Some did, of course, when they were converted. Many did not. And many turned back after making some sort of profession of Christianity that they were in danger of turning back to Old Testament forms. Now, listen to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. She asked him the question in John 4. She said, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship, and we say that this Mount Gerizim is the place where we ought to worship. Which is right, she said to Jesus. He said, woman, the hour is coming when you shall neither in Jerusalem nor yet in this mountain worship God. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that means that once the day had come when Christ had died, worship would entirely change and all these Old Testament forms would go because Christ, who is the fullness of divine revelation, has come and he has accomplished everything of which these shadows are simply pointers and types until Jesus should finish the work really and truly. You can all tell me if I were to ask you what happened when Jesus died. As soon as he died, when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, what happened to the curtain? Split from top to bottom. Meaning all the Old Testament rituals are finished. The way into the presence of God is now achieved by one man's death, our blessed and holy Savior, Jesus Christ. So the epistle to the Hebrews is given to show these Jews, and also, of course, us too, who Christ is and what he has done. So the argument goes like this. Let me summarize. I won't be, I hope, too tedious with Hebrews, but let me just give you an outline of what is said in Hebrews. First, Christ, he said, is above the angels. Second, he's above Moses. He's above Aaron, the high priest. The covenant of grace, written in our hearts in New Testament times is more important than the covenant made with Israel of old. For this reason, he says, that the covenant at Sinai was written on tables of stone. But the New Testament covenant is written in hearts of flesh, far more important. Moreover, he says, the New Testament has given us a sacrifice which is infinitely valuable, valuable than the Old Testament sacrifices. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinklingly unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the argument is, now that Christ has come, all these shadows of the Old Testament are out of date, and we must worship God in an entirely different way. And in case anyone's in any doubt about who Christ is, as our dear brother read a moment ago, we have right at the very beginning of Hebrews unmistakable identification marks as to the Godhood of Christ. Listen to this. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Well, that's not an angel. 
It is a being far above angels. Or again, verse 8, addressing Christ, Thy throne, O God, O God. Or again, in the first chapter of Hebrews, it is said that this is the Christ by whom God made the worlds. So our maker, our creator, is Jesus Christ. Now what's implied in this? Well, several things of great importance for us. First of all implied in this is that the Bible is the infallible, trustworthy word of God given by divine inspiration. Why do I say that? Well, because that's Christ's view. And if he is the final revelation of God, then he brings the whole truth concerning God to our attention. And paramount amongst all these things is the conception that the Bible is absolutely reliable. We don't need to go to it and pick out bits here and bits there and discard this and that and the other. No, no. It's all solid truth and solid gold. Let me give you texts that Jesus gives. Speaking of the Bible, Jesus says, Thy word is truth. The scripture cannot be broken. When he argues with the devil, he doesn't enter into a dialogue. He simply says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And of course, that's true of the doctrine of marriage, isn't it? What does Jesus say about marriage? He says, uh, God's doctrine of marriage is this. In the beginning, he made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And that's the final revelation that Christ has given us, the authority of God Almighty. That is the God's doctrine of the marriage. Take Christ's view of the future. Now, many people who are not Christians act on the assumption that God is full of mercy and kindness and love and goodness, and that when they die, you know, their good deeds will be balanced against their bad deeds. You've got this idea. A man in the street says, well, I'm not an angel, but you know... I've got my bad points, I swear, and I drink, and I do this, and I do that. I don't go to church except three times a year. But on the other hand, I've got good points, you know. I'm good to my wife, and this and that, and I sometimes put a collection in a charity box, and I sometimes go along to a Christian Institute meeting, and I wish them well. These good points balance the bad points, you see. It's a balancing act. Now, what are we to say to these people on the authority of Christ? The answer is, we must say, my dear friends, the righteousness which we need as sinners, if we are to get to heaven, is a 100% righteousness. This is what Jesus meant when he was talking to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came along worshipping and saying, what must I do to, to have eternal life? And He said, I do this and that and the other and I keep the law. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He said, there's none good but one, that is God. In other words, Jesus meant the standard of goodness you must have if you're going to get to heaven is 100%. And the rich young ruler knew he hadn't got that because he wasn't prepared to sell his goods and give to the poor, so his money was his idol. And my friend, none of us has a 100% righteousness. So nobody's going to get to heaven on the basis of their own goodness. What's the hope for the sinner? Well, it's what Martin Luther found. The only hope for the sinner is to get that gift of righteousness from God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
When Martin Luther was studying Romans chapter 1, he came across that verse that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Martin Luther said, I hate this doctrine about the righteousness of God. He said, it's this righteous God that I can't stand. He keeps tormenting my conscience. This righteousness of God. How can Paul glory in the righteousness of God? When the righteousness of God is what terrifies me as a sinner. And he prayed about it, which is what we should always do. And one day, I'm quoting Luther now in his table talk. One day Luther said, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see that the righteousness of God in the gospel is not his punishing righteousness. It is the free gift of Christ's righteousness, which he achieved by life and death, given to those who believe. And he said, when I saw that, I was like a man who had gone into paradise. The Bible became a new book. Now, friends, we must make it clear to people that that's the only doctrine of salvation there is. They've got to have Christ as the final revelation of God. They've got to have him. Otherwise, I'm afraid, there's nothing but hellfire and everlasting punishment. Now, I want to say one further thing before I close. And the final thing I want to do is this, if I may. I want just to confront the modern secular objector. I imagine he's sitting in this chair here. And he says to me, that's all very well, you're a minister, you believe the Bible. I don't. Where's your objective proof for all this stuff about Christ being the final revelation? Give me some evidence that I can get my hands on and my brain on. You're talking about things of faith. Where's the objective evidence? Well, let me touch on that, if I may. The first objective evidence is from the prophecies of the Old Testament. In other words, let me say this another way, more simply. How do we know that Jesus Christ is God's final revelation? How do we know that from objective, measurable, visible evidence? Is there any? Or is it all speculation and religious guesswork? Well, here's my first argument. No. Take the Old Testament prophecies. Now, these were given over hundreds of years, from the days of Moses, that's 1500 BC, right up to the days of Malachi, that's about 400 BC. So there's about 1100 years of prophecies. Uh, you know who they are. There's Moses, there's David in the Psalms, there's Solomon in the Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Now, these were prophets giving information about Christ. A great scholar of the 19th century, Canon H.P. Lydon, L-I-D-D-O-N, who died in 1890, an Oxford scholar, Canon Lydon, Church of England, said this, that you can find 332 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life, ministry, and death and resurrection of Christ. 332. Now that's objective evidence. If a person doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, all he has to do is get his Bible, and read and study these Old Testament prophecies, and what will he find? Well, he'll find that the virgin birth is referred to in the Old Testament. Bethlehem, the place of the birth, is referred to. Uh, Judas Iscariot's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver is referred to. Um, Day of Pentecost is referred to. The spread of the gospel universally is referred to and the worldwide influence of Christ in the Gentile world is referred to. Uh, 
It took 300 years for the gospel to conquer the Roman Empire. 313, Constantine the Great was now Roman Emperor and uh, he abolished all acts of persecution against the church. So it took just 300 years for Christ to conquer the Roman Empire. And today they say there are at least 100 million Christians in China and probably as many as that and more than that in Africa. South Korea, probably a similar number. So how do you account for this? All these Old Testament prophecies. And then take the miracles of Christ. There are four classes of miracles. There's miracles of nature, in which he walks on the water, etc. Miracles of healing, in which he touches a person or speaks to a person, and whatever illness they had is healed. Thirdly, there's the demons, which he cast out when people came to him for help. And then resurrections from the dead. Now, they're recorded in the Gospels. Somebody might say, but all that's just stuff in the Bible. Yes, but there were, there were thousands of witnesses to these things. They didn't happen in the dark when nobody was there. Thousands of people saw, witnessed, and beheld these things. And what we have in the Bible is simply a record of what these thousands of people saw and witnessed. And their enemies couldn't deny it. Isn't that objective evidence, these miracles that Jesus did? Witnessed by thousands. And then let me take one third line of evidence. The resurrection of Christ. It's very important as a piece of evidence. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. How do you account for the story in the Bible that he rose from the dead? Well, you may know the name of Frank Morrison. In the 1930s, I think it was, this clever gentleman was an... Um, journalist or something. He didn't believe the Bible, so he set himself to prove that the resurrection of Christ was rubbish. So he tells us the story himself. He, he studied the New Testament, he studied the evidence, he studied the post-biblical evidence in the early church fathers, and he put it all together, and he intended to write a book to show that the resurrection of Christ is sheer nonsense. But then when he came to write his book, it was exactly the opposite. Having studied the evidence, he said, I've come to this conclusion, there's no possible explanation other than it's true. He wasn't the first one to do that. I'm interested to tell you that in the 18th century, two very learned men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, very clever men, uh, set themselves as philosophers uh, the task that they would study two subjects for one year. One of them would study the resurrection of Christ and the other would study the conversion of Paul. And they would come together after a year of part study and uh, they would have written their book and they would prove that neither of these things was factual but both were fictitious. It's very interesting, nice to read, that when they came together a year later, they coughed and spluttered and the first man said, <clears throat> I'm sorry to disappoint you, my friend, but I've studied the evidence for the conversion of the Apostle Paul and I... I'm convinced, it, I'm convinced it's true, he said. And the other one coughed and splattered. <clears throat> I'm sorry to tell you, he said, I'm convinced the resurrection's true. Well, my dear friends, these were honest men looking for the truth. If people would only study the word of God looking for the truth, sincerely, without prejudice. Of course, there are arguments against the resurrection. I must touch on them very briefly. Some of these you may know. The first objection to the resurrection is this. The disciples stole the body. 
So it wasn't a resurrection at all. The disciples came by night and pushed away the stone and stole the body. What's the objection to that? Well, there were Roman soldiers, heavily armed, protecting entrance into the grave. That's one objection. Another part of it is that uh, they, uh, the disciples didn't even believe the resurrection themselves when they were told about it. So they were in no state of mind to steal the body. They were also honest men. They had no wish to tell lies. So that doesn't work. Try another one. The Jews removed the body and hid it. Ah, but as soon as the story of the resurrection became current in society, all the Jews then had to do was to bring out the corpse and say, he's not raised at all, here's a dead body. But they couldn't, because they didn't have it. A third one is very flattering to the ladies. It's that Mary had a hallucination. Mary Magdalene, of course, was a, a poor woman. Right? You, know, you know how women have hallucinations. They think things are there when they're not there. Oh, I can see you're all agreeing with them. You know, poor woman. She thought she saw Jesus. She loved him so much she had a sort of daytime vision that he really was there. And she told the disciples, and they immediately believed it. What do we say to that? Well, Apostle Paul tells us there were 500 people saw him at the same time. Did they all have this hallucination? They were men, of course, too, so they couldn't possibly have had it, could they? And then the fourth objection is that Jesus simply fainted. He wasn't dead at all. When they took him down and wrapped him up, he was still alive. But when he got into the cold of the tomb, he came round, you see. <gasps> he revived him and he somehow had the strength to push a ton of stone aside and roll it like, get through these soldiers who for some reason weren't noticing he was getting through and convince the disciples he was alive from the dead. Come off it. Sheer nonsense. There's no explanation for the resurrection but the one the Bible gives. That Jesus, who is God's final revelation, is what he claimed to be, the saviour of the world. There's none other. Could I ask you before I close, do you know the story about Etta Linneman? Etta Linneman was a historical critical scholar in Germany. It's a German name, of course. She was a, a lady, very, very clever lady. I'm reinstating the ladies now. A very intelligent lady. And uh, she wrote her books. She was a Bultmann scholar, which means that you don't believe the miracles, but you teach everything else in the Bible. So the miracles taken away because you're a historical, critical scholar. Get rid of the miraculous and the supernatural because that's just myth. You demythologize the Bible, therefore, of all these myths. And all the rest is good stuff, so you teach it. So she had her books, and her students had to study this stuff and do the exams based on her lectures. And so it went on for some years. She was quite famous until one day, guess what happened? She met humble Christians like you. And she was amazed. She'd never met people like that before who believed all the things in the Bible, and she was converted. And this is what she did. She went into her classroom, stood here, Students there, she said, do you have my books? Well, of course, they smiled. They had to have her books. Well, she said, I've burnt all mine. I advise you to burn yours, she said. They're absolutely worthless, she said. I didn't know Christ as my saviour when I wrote those things. Well, of course, the university couldn't possibly tolerate that, so she had to go from Germany, and she went to somewhere like um, Indonesia to teach in a Bible college. It just died a few years ago. Atta Linneman. Now this makes the great point, nobody will ever believe the truth concerning Christ unless they're born again. 
We can argue the case and state the case, but except a man is born again, he cannot understand, he cannot see, he cannot believe. So as I close, let me state these things finally. Jesus Christ is certainly the final revelation of God. And he deserves our faith, our love, our service. And may I say how deeply appreciative I am of the Christian Institute and the faithful service you do, ladies and gentlemen, to the Christian community in our country, making us aware of these very serious issues. We do thank God for you and pray God to bless you. And you're doing it out of love for Christ and you will receive your reward from him. So there's only one thing that really matters in the end of the day, isn't it? Will I get to heaven or not? When I die, it won't be long for you or me. When I die, will I get to heaven? That's the big question. And you can be a great academic and you can be a designer of rocket science. But the only question that matters in the day of death is, will I go to heaven or not? The only answer is, yes, if you believe in Jesus Christ, who is God's final revelation. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Roberts. There is time for questions if anyone has them. I've enjoyed your talk very, very much. Um, can you, regarding scripture, what happens to um, children who die <clears throat> at birth or maybe in, before they're actually uh, delivered? Um, do they go to heaven if the parents... Um, believe and desire to bring their child, that child up in the love of the Lord um, I, I'd like to have an answer to that question please and thank you for your talk Well let's take two cases, a case of those whose parents are believers and wish them to be brought up in the way of the Lord of such children I would say myself that there's very very good reason to believe that they all go to heaven on the basis that Christ died and his death is of value and efficacy for such children. So take the second case of children who are in pagan society and, and aborted children and children who uh, never, never see the light of day because they're aborted. My personal view, I can't be dogmatic on answering this, well, my personal view is that in all probability they will all go to heaven. I think it very probable. I think Spurgeon took that view and I think Charles Hodge took that view and these are eminent men who have studied the scriptures all their life and they would do so on the basis of the loving kindness of God who makes the blood of Christ available to all those who are in a condition of extreme feebleness as children are in that condition. So I can't be dogmatic but I believe that that is the best, clearest, most likely biblical answer to give to you. Hello, thank you for your talk. You said that we won't hear another word from God with Jesus as the final revelation. Uh, could you ex tell me what, the what Jesus meant when he said the Holy Spirit will take from that which is mine and reveal it to you? He means that the things that are written in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which we ourselves cannot understand except by divine help, these things will be made understandable to us as Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our minds and hearts. 
So when we read the Bible, we should always pray that God will give us understanding of what is written so that we might understand correctly what is written and not drift off into false interpretations. Uh, I would add one thing. In the case of the apostles, they were given extra revelation so as to write down Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Acts, Romans, etc. So the apostles and apostolic men who were appointed to the apostleship, they were given the ability to write books of the New Testament. What Christ did not mean is that anything which is not written in the Old and New Testaments would be ever given as a revelation to anybody in New Testament times because that would be to add to Scripture. And Christ has said that uh, if we add to Scripture, he will add to us the plagues of this book. Uh, Looking throughout church history, there does seem to be a progressive revelation in a subsidiary sense, a progressive understanding of the Scriptures. Somewhere at home, I have two volumes by a Scottish divine called Historical Theology or something. Yes, that's right. Bannerman, I think. That's right, yes. Now, um, this is a very interesting phenomenon. And my question, I once asked Dr. James Packer, uh, Dr. Packer, do you think any extra understanding uh, with the church has come to any extra understanding since the days of the Puritans? And he looked at me suspiciously as to, you know, I was trying to trap him into uh, something I would use against him, which I would never do, of course. But, uh, uh, and he said, well, probably not, he said. Or perhaps the wider understanding, wider emphasis on a multi-person ministry in the church rather than a sort of one-man ministry. I just wondered if you would like to comment on that. I like the first half of Dr. Packer's answer rather than the second part, uh, if I may say so, with the greatest respect for that very learned and eminent gentleman. Um, I'm not so sure that we do not overdo today the multifunctional ministry in, in New Testament times. I, I think what is most important is that preachers themselves, called to the work of preaching, should be eminently spiritual men, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the knowledge of Scripture, and give good, sound sermons to their congregations. I think that's the primary purpose and function of the ministry. The, all, all the congregation have something to do, but it's nothing to do with actually going to the pulpit. Their work is to go out and get what's being given them from the pulpit into the wider world and see that they can bring them to Christ. I think you would want me to thank... Mr. Roberts, very much indeed for his very thorough biblical explanation. Thanks for coming. Thank you for all you've given.